Welcome to the Lapsus Lima podcast. Please support us by signing up for member-exclusive content at lapsuslima.com. Hello, I'm David Getson. Before we begin, thank you to all for waiting for our return. We hope you also enjoy the new forums on lapsuslima.com, where you can now ask questions, start discussions, and comment on each episode. In 1908, Adolf Loos must have felt quite alone. For more than a decade, he had been at the forefront of architectural criticism, and he was just beginning to land significant commissions. A year prior, Hermann Mothesius had formed the Deutscher Werkbund, and Loos was not involved with it. Intellectuals like Georg Simmel were invited, and the architects Olbrich and Hoffmann whom Loos regarded as barbarians, were too. They were now part of what perceived itself to be the definitive organization for the advancement of modern architecture in Europe. Henri van de Velde was brought in from Belgium. Young upstarts like Peter Behrens and his three promising interns, Ludwig Mies, Walter Grotheus, and Charles-Edouard Jeanneret Gris, who would know fame as Le Corbusier, were all Werkbund members. As such, they were favored with insider ties to industry. The Austrian misfit was left to do things his way, the hard way. As a reaction to the first Werkbund meetings in Munich, Loos published an article entitled Die Überflüssigen, or The Surpluses, where he looked on in horror as architecture headed in exactly the direction he had wished for it to avoid. The Werkbund was operating on the same principle that, ten years later, would become the founding impulse for the Bauhaus, on the same drive that had fueled the by-then maligned Art Nouveau movement, namely, on the unification of arts and crafts. But Loos was diametrically opposed to this conflation, and he let his feelings be plainly known. For modern people, art is a divine goddess, and to employ it on objects of practical use is to prostitute her. So we have an idea of what he felt Mutasius's true profession was. But though Loos launched the opening salvos of European modernism, the campaign at large was escaping him, fast. As we saw in episodes 3 and 4, Loos felt that the crowning achievement of the 19th century had been to separate arts from crafts, just as the 18th century had separated art from science. He argued that these new attempts to reunite the two were as ridiculous as continuing to read Renaissance anatomy books whose neat copper engravings showed what Greek gods looked like with their abdominal skin removed. Loos thought that the so-called applied arts were categorically, noxiously redundant. The separation of arts and crafts rendered them superfluous. As far as Loos was concerned, the Werkbund, which saw this separation as a great and disruptive error, was raising a sandcastle against the tides of history. Mutasius was not indifferent to them, though, far from it. He thought that the divisive dynamics of the 19th century had injured and corrupted architecture. 
where he and Los, and for that matter Sullivan, agreed was first in their belief that Western culture's ability to produce a vital architecture was dead, and secondly, in that the imitation of historical styles and the accumulation of referential ornament was a symptom of this general malaise. But while Loos saw the flourishing of independent science as liberating to the arts, Mutasius felt the scientific worldview of the post-enlightenment had seeped into every seam of culture to an inane degree, with the spiritual development of mankind suffering as a result. From our current perspective, this agreement about 19th century historicism being the symptom of a cancerous architecture within a generally ailing civilization is enough to put our three precursors on a similar footing, and the reason why we tend to lump them all into the category of modern. The trend was already established when, by the 1960s, architects like Mies van der Rohe and historians like Karl Condit referred to them with overarching admiration. But we should not be too quick to dismiss their very significant differences. Wright himself would later and divisively proclaim that the countenance of American modern architecture would cross the ocean, but not its spirit. And we have seen how Loos was bitterly opposed to Mutasius, of whom he thought as a reactionary. We must also note that the phenomenon we now call modernism broadly might be thought of as a multifaceted approach to a common problem. It was generally felt that, sometime in the 19th century, or even earlier, Europe had become lost. The way that Mutasius and the Werkbund understood this problem and confronted it was owed to a specific intellectual framework that saturated cultural discourse at the time, and which remains provocative to us today. Beneath all their analyses and actions was the literal assumption that civilizations live and die, are born and grow and age like organisms do. As much of the philosophy at the time, the fin de siècle's outlook on kulturkritik is grounded in the works of Friedrich Nietzsche perhaps the greatest diagnostician Western culture ever had. In his survey of cultural ills, Nietzsche had stated that the high points of culture and civilization lay in opposition to each other. One should not be misled about the gulfish antagonism between culture and civilization. The great moments of Kultur were always, from a moral point of view, times of corruption. Civilization, on the other hand, has contained epochs of the deliberate and enforced debrutalization of humans. These were times of great intolerance for spiritual and hardy natures. Civilization wills something entirely different from Kultur, perhaps the opposite. These two watchwords, Kultur, in reference to an efflorescent society, and Zivilisation, in allusion to a time of dispersal 
and eventually decay, loomed large in the social imagination of the fin de siècle. Sociologist Ferdinand Tönnies would notably frame this distinction as a contrast between the community-based culture of pre-capitalist Europe and the civilization of the market-based post-industrial world. Architectural historian Frederick Schwartz calls this dichotomy the shared reference point behind the discussions of the reform of architecture and the applied arts in the German Werkbund. We cannot understand the motivations of the Werkbund or its goals without first knowing this distinction between Kultur and Zivilisation underpinned all its anxieties and hopes. Nor should this cultural critique be thought of as an academic exercise. The stakes were frighteningly high, and the admonitory writings of Marx and Engels from the 1840s onward echoed through as well. Anarchists and communists bet on the violent overthrow of the ruling order. Artists like Gauguin fled from the modern world as far as possible, to rural Brittany at first, and then to the Pacific Islands. Even religious groups, such as the Amish in America, led their own flights from technological disruption at this time. So it is comprehensible that those who found themselves in charge of something as impactful and enduring as the buildings of the time would feel compelled to formulate a lasting answer to the crisis. Schwartz writes that, the state of spiritual disorientation that Matthesius described was to many very real. And this is why philosophers such as Werner Zombart and Georg Simmel were brought on board as members of the Werkbund. When a culture is adrift, stargazers are not cooped up in the ivory tower. They are needed to make maps and to delineate where, and sometimes even how, to sail. Philosophers are culture's navigators, and the men of the Werkbund were aware that if culture was allowed to advance without any deliberate input from philosophy, it was surrendering too much decisive power to the forces of fashion and commerce, to both custom and market sways and they were not about to let the craft of architecture be tilled by an invisible hand. The 1912 essay, Where Do We Stand?, took full front on these serious matters. Prior to its publication, it was read by Matthesius before the annual congress of the Deutsche Werkbund in 1911. An editorial note, all the quotes that follow are my own translation from the German. Mutesius's critique of culture, much like Loess's, starts with the Enlightenment, though instead of praising the separation of art and science, and thence of arts and crafts, he laments that scientism has become a new hegemony. While he acknowledges the most doubtless of all sciences, that of mathematics, which through Leibniz's enormous contribution of calculus merged with the natural sciences to yield the development of technology. Only in this way 
Successes were achieved here in a century that put the earlier work of thousands of years in the shadows. He is not blind to the deformities that the hypertrophy of intellectualization can set the stage for. Spiritual matters, he asserts, do not have a mathematical formula. For certain activities that had been previously tuned to harmony have been left fallow by the unilateral direction. The artistic sense of our species had suffered for it, and the quality of art decreased so far as to be almost entirely lost. While this may sound alarmist to us, we must recall that Mutasius is speaking of the impact of technology on art here. To give a case, despite the great things that photography has given us, it cannot be denied that it has undermined the popularity of portrait painting. His concerns were thus results-oriented. Honing in on the target, he emphasized that what is at stake here is form. Form is not determined by computational results. It is not satisfied with functionality. It has nothing to do with practical thinking. It is that higher architectonics, which is to create a mystery of the human mind, as is done with poetic and religious ideas. It is form that enables us to individual feats of human art, Greek temples, Roman thermal baths, the Gothic cathedral, the prince's chamber of the 18th century, the form that our likeness touches as with poetry and music. Practicality, function, requirements, these are all ingredients that are fed into the final outcome, the ultimate form. Mutasius argues that we delude ourselves with single-minded enlightenment systems if we believe that they suffice for us to qualify as functionalists. The best of art and design is ever more than the sum of its parts, and despite any theorizing, it is always the embodied or the physical result, the fundamental form of a thing that communicates this transcendental affect or fails to. Zooming out to the distinction between Kultur and Zivilisation that had been driving this decline in form, Mutasius described the conditions he wished to recover. Even the 18th century still developed native manners in its festivals, in the interior of the house, the garden, the circumscriptive rules, all these things were born out of a sense of soothing propriety, a sense of rhythm that dominated the whole of life. At that time, an architecture could be alive as a conviction of an era because, in a sense, all of life was architectural. Mutasius even goes so far to praise those very cultures that conservatives and even radicals like Los had deemed as savage. We see it even with the indigenous peoples in any activity, whether in dance, in the language, even in the performance of their primitive works, the sway of an unconscious rhythmic instinct. In this light, 
The figure of the tattooed poppin was not a symbol for the understanding of the new European criminality, but an exemplar of a native instinct that the Europeans had lost and must learn to recover. A caveat is in order, though. While this may sound like the romantic yearning for a bygone era where there was a place for everything and everything was in its place, it is assuredly not. Mutasius even goes as far as citing that romantic impulses of that sort are at least partially responsible for the catatonic situation of the European arts. Sentimentality, a focus on usefulness and other motifs pressed in and gained an upper hand over the sense of form. Romanticism manifested itself in the middle of the 18th century in the enthusiasms that triggered a pseudo-Asianism. At the same time, the zeal for art historical research discovered the so-called true forms of Greek art. Both were directly copied over to architecture. Lamenting equally the imitation of Eastern and Western historical styles, he points out that by 1851, an architect as respected as Gottfried Zemper was forced to exclaim when viewing the First World's Fair in London that, in art, the barbarian and semi-barbarian peoples had conquered the civilized nations. But not everything was dead or dying. There were stirrings of kultur for whomever knew where to look. Mutasius remarks, for example, on the welcome impact of reforms in the arts and crafts, or Kunstgewerbliche Reformen. These included the Kunstgewerbschule, or arts and crafts schools that he had advised the Prussian government on. These now existed throughout Germany and would comprise the core of what would very soon develop into the Bauhaus. Via Julius Langbein's book, Rembrandt as an Educator, Mutasius cites Lagarde and Nietzsche as fundamental influences to new forms of thought, and observes that the first positive changes in the new design were coaxed and even triggered by philosophy, such that, when ways of thinking changed, modes of design evolved. But it was not until the 1890s that a fresh and lively spirit, Art Nouveau, came to be effective in the arts. We remember those years of ferment and effervescence, 1890 to 1895. Those years were like the birth pangs of a new era, one in which all areas of art announced mighty revolutions. We recall then the years around 1895, the outbreak of the so-called revolution in the arts and crafts. We knew at the time that in brandishing the catchphrase modern art, the whole of heaven would be stormed. Any repetition of previously used forms was frowned upon. They were trying to stomp out on the ground the outlines of a new formal language of architecture. Rapidly changing fashions grew in those decades out of a hothouse atmosphere. But then came a mere changeling of modern art. The Jugendstil, Art Nouveau, 
As we see today, it almost brought more confusion than before regarding the repetition of historical styles, but it is indicative of the power living within the movement. Thus, das Mauserungsgefieder bald abgeschüttelt wurde, that the molting feathers were briskly shaken off. After only a few years, we have achieved a clarity of expression in the arts and crafts. Everywhere today, new life stirs. A fresh architectural mind whirs into action. So, in passing verdict on the essay's question as to where he and his contemporaries stood, Mutasius ended with the remarkable result that Germany was again at the threshold of a new artistic era. He also saw that now was not the time for self-congratulations. No matter how enthused the younger generations were or how happy the old, as we noted before, Germany was not Austria. There was still so much to overcome. The old roadblocks of sentimentality and the stubborn obsession with usefulness remained as obstacles in the culture at large. A well-established tradition for the new artistic expression had not yet been formulated because, despite what we have achieved, we are still wading knee-deep in a confusion of forms. If you need proof, the fact should be pointed out that daily and hourly our country is still covered with manufactured goods of a most inferior character. These products that are unworthy of our time leave for posterity an all-too-eloquent language of the barbarism of our days. What sense does it make to speak of success as long as this is still the case. One must not be content to have corrected the condition of the sofa cushion and the chair. As Germany enters what he calls a new era of peace, it must think ahead. Far weightier than the material is the spiritual. Higher than purpose, material and technique stands form. These three material aspects might be impeccably handled, but if form were not, we would surely still be living in a coarse world. So there remains before us as our goal a much greater and more important task right before our eyes to awaken once more an understanding for form and the revival of architectonic sensibilities. Formlessness is synonymous with Odenkultur. The truly cultured people feel from the brutalities of form an almost physical pain. They feel in these the same discomfort that comes from dirt and bad odors. Even so, the development that took decades to mature from a swerve in philosophy to the formal revolution of Art Nouveau had not yet percolated well enough into the German public's mind. So, rather than being rightly interested in something so important to their lives, the general public fled from a discussion of architecture as if it were a lecture on Sanskrit. 
Matesius thought there was a way around this, though. Das Zauberwort, das die Apathie gelöst hat, heißt Heimatschutz. The magic word that has solved this apathy is Homeland Security. Stay tuned next week as we conclude our examination of Wo stehen wir? Thank you for listening. <laughs>